0: WLCC Brandon
1: Faith Talk Tampa online at Let's or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
1: Think with me for a moment, because when Peter, when Andrew, when Matthew, and all of Christ first followers initially became his disciples. They really had no way of knowing that following Jesus would involve following him in the midst of danger, conflicts, suffering. For some of them, it would even result in death. How, How could they?
2: I am convinced that there are millions of people who think they are going to heaven, but are tragically mistaken because they have not heard from the Bible how to receive eternal life. You can know for sure if you have eternal life by some tests that we'll learn about today and in the next class. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve has been the teaching pastor for more than 26 years at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we begin a study from Matthew chapter 10 about the marks of a true disciple. Here is Pastor Steve
1: several years ago, one of the most controversial subjects debated amongst believers was the issue that has come to be known as lordship salvation. And the debate really boiled down to the question of whether or not an individual could accept Christ as Savior without any submission to him as Lord. One of the leading proponents, in fact, the leading proponents of lordship salvation was John MacArthur, who wrote a book about the subject entitled The Gospel of According to Jesus. Well, my friend Phil Johnson, who has been a longtime colleague of John MacArthur's and therefore was at the, the really the center of this theological storm, recently wrote a series of articles on his website entitled How I Got Drawn into the Lordship Debate. I want to read to you, it's a little bit lengthy, but an excerpt from one of those articles explaining about how Phil's experience as a youth pastor. In a church in Florida, not in our church, but another church in Florida, was related to this lordship controversy and sort of drew him into it. He writes I'll never forget my first meeting with the youth group. It was a modest sized group, about 20 kids. We had a brief time of introduction where each member of the youth group gave a short self introduction. I had asked them if they were believers to describe how they came to faith. Every one of them claimed to be a Christian. And in almost every case, they grounded their hope of salvation in some supposed moment of faith in early childhood when their parents led them in praying to invite Jesus into my heart. In most cases, they said this occurred when they were about three or four years old, too young even to remember the moment. But every one of them hung their hope of heaven on some point in the past when they supposedly accepted Jesus as their Savior. And that one-time moment, one time moment of faith was the sole basis for their confidence that they were saved. Ominously, however, when they talked about their hobbies, interests, and aspirations for the future, not one of them articulated any passion or ambition that was remotely related to anything spiritual. As time went by and I got to know these kids personally, I began to have serious doubts about whether some of them were genuine Christians. In fact, he writes, with a few notable exceptions, the kids who seemed to dominate the group lived lives that were no different from their non-Christian friends, and some of them were significantly worse. If they had any real interest in the youth group, it was for the social activities alone. They had no desire for spiritual things. No apparent love for Christ, no ambition for personal holiness, no real esteem for the things of God, absolutely nothing that would distinguish them from the pagan kids in the neighborhood. In fact, he writes, some of the pagan kids live lives that on the surface seemed morally superior to some of these church kids who insisted they were Christians. I began to teach a series of Bible studies from the first epistle of John. Of course, that epistle includes a lot of truth that will shatter a pseudo-Christian's false confidence. In time, we studied verses like 1 John 2.4, which says, He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And 1 John 2.15, which says, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And 1 John 3.10, which says, In this the love of God and the children of the devil are Manifest or in this the children of God, rather, and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Numerous statements like those throughout First John strike directly at the heart of the no lordship perspective on saving faith. So as that youth group studied those passages, young people began coming to me to admit that they had never really loved Christ before. Some of them asked for help in understanding the gospel. A few of them confessed that they had only recently come to possess genuine saving faith. Of course, I rejoiced whenever a young person told me that, and I expected the student's parents to rejoice as well. Wrong. The response I began getting from parents was surprising. I remember a friend to call I received one night from a woman in our church. She said, Phil, I'm not sure what you've been teaching in the youth group, but our son came home and told me he has just become a Christian for the first time. Nothing in her tone conveyed that she was upset by this. So I said, well, praise the Lord. I've been praying for that student in particular. But she suddenly got very agitated with me and said, no, you don't understand. He's been a Christian since he was two years old. I held him on my lap and personally led him in a prayer to receive Christ. He's always been sure of his salvation until you started teaching in 1 John. It turned out that she was very upset with me. She informed me that a few of the parents in our church had conferred on the matter, and they were concerned that I was teaching their kids Lordship Salvation. Before long, that woman's son's life changed so dramatically for the better that she soon saw the reality of conversion in his life, and she realized that something genuine had finally happened to give her son a true love for Christ. God had changed his heart, and he was truly and soundly converted. He went on to study at a Christian university and is still walking with the Lord today. But the episode, he writes, brought the lordship controversy back to the forefront of my thinking. What precisely does the gospel call sinners to? Discipleship, conversion, surrender, a notional faith, or a life-changing trust? Is love for Christ something different from and extraneous to faith? And if called upon to distill the essence of the gospel in our succinct plea to sinners, what would that include? Did I really, truly understand the gospel? I don't think Phil Johnson is alone as far as what his thinking was. Do we really understand what the gospel is all about? Now, all these questions that troubled Phil back then can be reduced really to one question, folks, one issue. What did Jesus say about being one of his disciples? In other words, how did Jesus define following him in terms of being a disciple? Now, we have an answer to that. Because in our study, in our previous studies of the Gospel of Matthew, we've actually seen several instances where Jesus called some individuals to become his disciples. They were his disciples. He treated them as their disciples. And in doing this, in observing this, we are able to see that he didn't call them simply to acknowledge his Messiahship in an intellectual acceptance. That is to say, they didn't just know that, uh, that he was the Messiah and go on with their life. In calling them to discipleship, he called them to a radically different lifestyle. In other words, in calling them to follow him, Jesus called them into a relationship that did involve commitment, that did involve obedience, that did involve loyalty. That's what it's all about. And I want to show you this as we turn to the gospel of Matthew. Our passage is in Matthew 10, but I want you to look back at Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of the first instance in the Gospel of Matthew we're told about anyone becoming a disciple. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, the Lord had already introduced himself to them. They already knew about him. They already knew him. I take it that they that they were believers. But notice, to believers who were his disciples, this is what Jesus said. He said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, folks, they understood exactly what he was talking about. He meant, get up now, leave your profession, and follow me. And that's what they did. Immediately, verse 20 says, they left their nets and followed him. Folks, they turned their back on their profession. They turned their back on the way of making money, of supporting their families, and they followed him. They understood what discipleship was about. It wasn't just, I'll go to church, I'll sing a few songs, and I'll live any way I want. No, Jesus said, follow me, and they understood the implications of following him. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, the author of the Gospel of Matthew was a tax collector, had a lucrative position working for the Roman government. He was probably a crook, so he was stealing from people as well. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we read about his conversion. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. He got up and he followed him, and it means that he never went back to collecting taxes again. See, in both of these cases, we see that these men actually forsook their careers to follow Jesus. Peter and Andrew as professional fishermen and Matthew as a government tax collector. Now, Jesus doesn't tell all of us to do that, but the the important thing to notice here is that the men did this because they understood that being a disciple of Christ requires a commitment to him. Whatever he tells you to do, you do. That's salvation. That's disciple. There is no distinction in the Bible about that. However, think with me for a moment, because when Peter When Andrew, when Matthew and all of Christ's first followers initially became his disciples, they really had no way of knowing that following Jesus would involve following him in the midst of danger, conflicts, suffering. For some of them, it would even result in death. How how could they? How would they possibly know that? You see, when they began to initially follow Christ, he was a popular figure in Israel. Large crowds followed him as they were healed by him. He cast out demons. He taught. He had huge crowds around him. And I'm sure the apostles thought, isn't this great? Where Soon the kingdom will come. Soon Rome will be overthrown. And we're right in the midst of this. This is great. We will be popular. In fact, I'm convinced that's what drew Judas into the whole band of followers. He didn't care about Christ. He wanted the glory. And these other men had no clue as to the fact that following him would mean eventually being a very difficult experience. And though in the Sermon on the Mount, which was towards the beginning of Christ's public ministry, Jesus did mention that his disciples would be persecuted. He said, blessed are you and people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He did say that. However, it wasn't until later In Matthew 10, which is later in his ministry, that Jesus revealed the kind of depth and intensity of hatred that these disciples would experience as they went into the world with the gospel. Now, why did Jesus wait until Matthew chapter 10 to tell them about the intensity of persecution? It's very simple. As we've been studying this for the last few weeks, it seems like several months now, we've learned that Matthew chapter 10 is devoted to Christ instructing his new apostles and us by way of application as to the fact that we need to go and share the gospel with others. He's just called them recently to be apostles. He's giving them a brief short-term missions trip to go into the world rather to go to the Jewish people in Galilee, and then they'll go into the world, and they need to know what to expect. thats It's imperative now that they understand how the world will react to the gospel. They'll react with hostility. They'll react with anger. And so uh, the thought here is that these men now needed to know what they could expect in being his witnesses. And that's why when you come to this very pivotal verse, Of verse 16 of Matthew 10, we read that Jesus is telling them that he is thrusting them out like sheep in the midst of dangerous wolves. He goes on to clarify that the wolves are, are, are men and women, unbelievers who are antagonistic to the gospel. And Jesus said, some of them will flog you in the synagogue. Some of them will kill you because they're government officials. You'll be betrayed by family members and you'll be hated by people from all walks of life. This is your lot, in terms of being one of my followers, but he also went on to say that, in spite of all the adversaries out there, they didn 't need to be afraid they didn 't need to be afraid and this is what we saw last time. He gave three reasons why we can boldly and fearlessly proclaim him, even when there's so much antagonism. Number one is found in verse twenty six when he said this, he said that there, therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What he meant by that, in in essence, is this, that the truth about us, about believers, will eventually be known to all. They may slander you now. They may say you're evil. They may say you're foolish. They may say you're a religious uh, nutcase. But when he returns, everyone will know that we had it right because of God's grace in revealing Christ to us. Everyone will know that we were his bride. Everyone will know that we were his precious bride and his true followers because everything will be revealed that's been concealed now. So he's saying it's only temporary. You can handle the ridicule, the reproach now because eventually everyone will know the truth about you. And that's why I said in verse 27, what I tell you in darkness, speak in the light, what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim uh, upon the housetops. In other words, don't hold back, get to the highest place you can, which in Israel usually was the rooftop and just shout it for everybody to hear. Don't fear what men will do. They could only call you names now and do to you what they'll do to you, but they, uh, that will not be permanent. The second reason why we don't need to fear man is because their power is so limited. Their power is so limited. Notice verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. The worst man can do to you, Jesus is saying, is they'll take your life. The worst they can do to you, they'll take your life, but they cannot take your soul. They cannot affect eternity. So why fear them? That's all they can do is take your life. But he goes on to say, there is someone who we should fear. Fear so much that we'll obey him, and that's God. Rather, he says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And this fear that he's talking about is not a uh, terrorizing fear. This is a fear of God, a healthy fear, uh, an approach to him with such reverence that we say, Lord, we'll do whatever you want. So when we fear God like this, we will obey him and we will witness to others. And this is the way we overcome the fear of man that prevents us from witnessing to others. There is a healthy fear that presses us forward. There is a third and wonderful reason Jesus gave for not fearing any man, and that's because God sovereignly cares for us, sovereignly cares for us. He says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground, apart?" From your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And as I said last time, I don't think he's just saying this in the sense of saying, I know everything about you. I think what he's saying is not one hair on your head will perish apart from God's intimate knowledge and sovereign care of your life. Because he goes on to say, so do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. In other words, if God sovereignly takes care of relatively worthless birds that fall to the ground, knows all about it, intimately acquainted with them and controls even the, the timing of their deaths, then why do you need to be afraid? Because you're much more valuable to God than little birds. He knows everything about you. You'll not die a moment before his will for you is to die. So don't fear what men will do to you. Now, it's in light of all these three reasons, these three reasons that Jesus lays out not to fear men, that in the next section, the section we want to study today, that Jesus identifies several marks or characteristics of a true disciple of his. And there's a definite reason why this comes up now in his discourse and hear this out, because he wants us to understand, note this, that the test of genuine discipleship always comes, not when things are going well, but when there's pressure and when there's opposition. In other words, those who are true followers of Christ will follow him even during the difficult times. We are not fair-weather followers who only claim Christ when it's safe and there's no threat to being called a Christian. And so in the verses before us, The Lord wants us to clearly understand that genuine disciples prove the authenticity of their faith, not by simply attending church or enjoying the company of Christians, but by following Christ when it costs something to follow him. And it does cost us something. There are costs involved. Jesus will go on to tell us about the cost of being well-liked and popular. He'll tell us the cost may involve Peace being taken from our families where there'll be conflicts and strife and rifts. It may even cost you your own life as we take up our cross and follow him. By the way, and we'll, we'll look at this, Lord willing, next week, that has nothing to do with the burdens of life. You'll hear people often say, well, this is my cross to bear. Please don't say that. That's not what this is about. It's about death to take up one's cross. It's not a burden. A burden is a burden, not the cross. So it may even cost you your life. These are the types of costs that Jesus speaks of in these verses. And folks, this is most relevant for us. This is most pertinent for us because every one of us needs to take this test in order to make sure that we are either genuine disciples or we are pseudo-disciples. Those who simply have a relationship with a local church, but not with Christ himself. In other words, are we genuine Christians who have really been converted, Or are we those who have merely made a verbal profession of faith but aren't really saved? We don't want to be in the predicament of these kids from Phil Johnson's youth group where they banked all of eternity on a mom telling them, yes, you prayed with me. You don't remember that. You don't even know about that. But I'm telling you, you were there. Listen, you know, that boils down a lot to pride on the part of parents. How dare anyone think that my son, my daughter wouldn't be a believer? You better not do that, folks. You better make sure, you better love your children enough to make sure that it's real in their lives. And it's not a matter of you have to save face before others in the church. And so there are tests. This is a test. This is what this, is what this passage is about. God is concerned about if we really know him or not. And that's why scripture warns us a number of times about the danger of thinking we're saved when we aren't. Let me show you how many verses are coming at us from different Bible writers because they all have the same heart when it comes to determining whether we're really saved or not. Jesus himself spoke of this very issue in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. So here were people who banked heaven on what they did. They're involved in a church, perhaps. They served on this committee. They served on that committee. They, they had religious deeds. But Jesus said, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Not I never knew about you, but we never had a relationship. You and me, we never had a relationship. Therefore, he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They practice lawlessness because their hearts had never been changed. They had never truly been converted. So Jesus spoke about this. But not only Jesus, the apostle Paul spoke about this too. And it's very interesting. He said it to the Corinthians who he had said, I'm your spiritual father. But unlike this mother who Phil wrote about, who was very defensive, Paul was not defensive. Paul cared more about their soul than about his reputation as a spiritual father. And so he said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Give a test to yourself. What is that test? Examine yourselves, and here's the test. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? The test is, is there a reflection of Christ in your life? Is there any humility? any compassion, any love, any concern for obedience, those are the reflections of Christ.
2: Not only Jesus and Paul talked about the indications of genuine salvation, Peter stressed making sure of your salvation also. Pastor Steve will tell us about that in the next Verse by Verse. Thank you for joining us today. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These daily radio Bible classes are a natural extension of Pastor Steve's more than 26 years of expository teaching at Lakeside. They're brought to you by Verse by Verse Ministries and this fine radio station. Verse by Verse Ministries is a faith ministry supported by the prayers and gifts of interested listeners who are first faithful to their own churches. Today's class was the start of a three-part message. If you would like to hear the whole message at once, it's available on CD or cassette. To order a copy, call us at 727-441-1714. Leave your name and a number, and we will return your call during weekday office hours. That number again is 727-441-1714. If you visit our website, versebyverseradio.org, you can listen again to today's class or many of our previous broadcasts. We offer a free podcasting service as well as a complimentary newsletter if you would like to take advantage of either of those resources. That's versebyverseradio.org. Come to class next time as we continue to study Matthew chapter 10. We will hear just how easy it is to know for sure whether or not you are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 could be considered to be the theme of the Reformation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But what about the next verse? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God
0: prepared before